0: Okay, let's, let's pray as we spend time in God's Word together. Lord, please quiet our hearts this morning. Lord, prepare our, our minds and our affections to be drawn to you in your Word. We love you, Lord. We want to hear you speak to us. As we sit under your word now, reassure us of your great love for us. Teach us and correct us, we ask. Shape us and mould us into the people that you're transforming us to be. Amen. One of the, uh, there, there are many many joys of parented, parenthood. Uh, one of the unexpected ones for me has been the discovery of Bluey. Who here knows what Bluey is? Okay, all right. So quite a few of you, but quite a few not. So let me uh, also enlighten you. Uh, there's a, there's uh, the opening scene of Bluey. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a kid's show about a family of blue heeler dogs who are personified as your typical Aussie family. And uh, the, ki- the, the two kids are Bluey and Bingo, and they get up to all kinds of fun, uh, often with their parents, uh, who are named Chili and Bandit. Uh, it is, I think what's so enjoyable uh, about it for adults and kids alike is it is just so relatable, um, especially if you've got young kids, uh, or, <laughs> uh, yes, um, in, in one episode called Obstacle Course, here's a... Here's a screenshot of uh, the obstacle course episode. The dad, Bandit, is being super competitive with Bluey. Uh, They they start off the episode with uh, them playing Snap, and he is creaming Bluey, his small daughter. And um, Bingo, the other child, says, Dad, you should let Bluey win. And his response is, You don't want me to let you win, Bluey, because you'll give up trying to get better. But really, he's also very much enjoying winning. Um, Later on, the kids set up an obstacle course, and and he wanders out and sees it, and you can see where it's going. Um, uh, What emerges is that Bandit has a strong desire to win and get the glory, even against his little daughter. Uh, It's an exploration of competitiveness and winning and cheating and handling losing Uh, for both kids and adults alike. It's a fun episode. And and as human beings, uh, often just the the opportunity, the the potential of winning, just for the sake of winning, is enough to get us going pretty competitive. Uh, Who here is competitive? My hand is up. Yes, yeah. My wife's hand shot up very fast down the back as well. Um, Good, thank you for the honest ones amongst us. Um, uh, Competitiveness can drive us to serious effort, can't it? And A serious effort and commitment just for the sake of getting the glory saying, I won. Kids' church teachers know this well. We could be entering into a time of pack-up, or it could be a competition to see who can get the most balls back in the bucket as quick as possible and be declared the winner, and suddenly all the kids are highly motivated to pack up a whole bunch of balls on the floor. It uh, works for teenagers, too, in, at, at youth. Um, competitiveness can drive us to serious effort and commitment just for the sake of our glory. But sometimes we have a higher desire as well, don't we? A, a higher desire to let somebody else win, maybe a child, um, be, because you, your, your desire for them to enjoy themselves outweighs your desire for your glory in that particular situation. And so, so you, you might let them win. you're, You're committed to losing and losing the glory for someone else to get it. Now, of course, that comes unstuck. If you can't hold in admitting that you let them win, then it comes undone and you shouldn't have even bothered to let them win anyway. You've got to be committed to losing and losing the glory to let someone else win. And today we are talking about losing and letting Jesus win. Asking questions like How can we develop a natural reaction in ourselves to let Jesus win in our lives? To let Him win when we, by default, in our sinful nature, we want the glory. And we want our choices and our priorities to win over His by default. How can we let Jesus come first in our life? Luke chapter 9, 37 to 50 is our text this morning, and it speaks to that. Here, Luke combines. Five short little stories to create a, a, a kind of powerful stories picture that, that shows us that Jesus' followers must be willing to listen to Jesus and to lose for Jesus. I'll show you that stories picture in a moment. I'm going to retell you the story and then we're going to explore three questions rising from it. Uh, I think the, the, the set of stories that Luke gives us in this section of the Bible is in the shape of what's called a, a chiasm. Uh, that's a, a common Hebrew writing style that uses parallel themes to highlight a central idea. I'll show you what I mean. As I, as I tell you the story, uh, you can track with where we're at in the structure on the screen. Uh, so, here we go. I think the technology is going to work for me. Yeah, so just yeah, make, make that big for me. And we'll come to it in just a moment. A little bit of backstory before we hit verse 37. Um, Peter, James, and John, three of Jesus' disciples, have been selected by Jesus to spend a day on a prayer retreat up a mountain with Jesus. And there they see an incredible display of Jesus' great glory. He's transformed in front of them and he radiates so bright it's like lightning in front of them. And they hear the audible voice of God booming down saying, this is my son, listen to him. And We pick up our section. The day after all this, a large crowd met with them as they came down the mountain. From within the crowd, a man called out, teacher, I'm begging you, please look at my son. He's my only child. A spirit grabs him and, and he screams just out of nowhere and he starts seizing and shaking and, and foaming at the mouth. It hardly ever leaves him. It's destroying him. I, I begged your disciples to cast him out. But they couldn't. Jesus replied, You faithless and twisted generation, how long will I have to put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy stepped towards Jesus, the Spirit threw him to the ground, convulsing and shaking. But Jesus rebuked the demon. He healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And the crowd watching, utterly amazed at the greatness of God. Now, whilst everyone was marvelling at what Jesus did, he turned to his disciples. He said to them, listen, take this to heart. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of people. But the disciples didn't get it. The significance of what Jesus was saying to them was was lost on them. They they, they couldn't understand and they they were afraid to ask him. Next, the the disciples began to argue amongst themselves. Which of them was the greatest? Jesus knew their innermost thoughts. So he he brings a, a little child to his side. And he tells them, anyone who welcomes a little child in my name welcomes me. If they welcome me, they welcome my father who sent me. The one who is least among you, that one is great. Then John responded, Master, we saw someone else casting out demons in your name, And they're not following along with us. So we told him to stop. Jesus said, don't tell him to stop. Anyone who is not against you is for you. So Luke combines these these five short stories to show us that Jesus' followers must be willing to listen to Jesus and to lose for Jesus. It's, it's like an arrow of words. Can you see it? Uh, point, uh arrow of words and themes, demons and rebuke, topic of greatness, listen, Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to the cross. It, it's a similar idea to, to foreshadowing in, a, in our modern movies. You know, Something subtle might happen early on in the movie and, and you miss it And you miss its significance until later on, or maybe uh, you come back and you watch the movie again sometime, and and you think back, and and you realise, oh, that was significant. A lingered camera frame on a future murder weapon. An emphasised comment about the impossibility of the plan not working or anything going wrong. A carefully constructed series of scenes to call us to listen and to listen to Jesus. First question that arises from the story under the title Harsh Rebuke What was wrong with the father begging Jesus for help? I mean, this this man comes to Jesus. Desperate. And does Jesus start insulting him? Have a look with me at verse 38. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, but he's my only child. A spirit seizes him, he screams, it throws him into convulsions. so he he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him alone. It's destroying him. You can hear the emotive language, I begged your disciples. To drive him out, but they, they couldn't. This is a man at the end of his rope, pleading, begging, help me, Jesus. And we've come to expect so far in the gospel stories to expect Jesus to respond with compassion, haven't we? You know, they come in faith, even, even a mustard seed, even a tiny bit of faith, and Jesus responds with compassion and healing. But here he starts declaring some sort of judgment. Verse 41, you are unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. "How uh, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. So what was wrong with the father begging Jesus for help? Now did you pick up in my body language as I retold the story what I think is going on here? There's a few layers of audiences, isn't there? This man steps forward out of the crowd, who's with Jesus all the way along through the gospel. So there's the man and his son, there's, there's the crowd, and there's the 12 disciples. There's a lot of people in this conversation. And so I think what is happening is, is the first bit, what, it, what Jesus says first, that's intended for a wider audience. Now, because the man is not a generation. He's one person. He speaks to the to whether it's the crowd or his disciples or both. But either or it's a, it's a wider audience. And then he speaks to the Father Bring bring your son here. And we, and we get the familiar tone of compassion to heal. And Jesus wants to heal, wants to help this. Father, and help this son, but there's an elephant in the room. There is something wrong here. Whilst Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, the other nine disciples had failed to do the exact thing that he had really quite recently given them authority and power to do so as to proclaim the kingdom of God has arrived with him. If we were to... Flick back to the start of chapter 9, verse 1. It'll come up on the screen, or have a look in your Bibles. Uh, verse 1, chapter 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So why couldn't they do it? And, he's, and they, they, they had a very successful mission trip in that bit of the story and but here they couldn't do it and and jesus knows that the answers coming later on as the story unfolds in more detail when they start arguing we we get more of a window i think but in short rather than being caught up in jesus and in, in his kingdom and passionate about his name and his mission they were evidently more focused on how great they were becoming as disciples of jesus I mean he's spectacularly great. He's got crowds following. He's doing amazing things. If he's that great, how great must we be as his 12 close disciples? A guy, guy comes up needs help with a demon-possessed son. It's my time to shine. No worries. Glad you came to us. Came to the right place in Jesus' name. Yep, that's us. That's us, guys. Um, watch me cast out this demon. Okay, everybody. Uh, all right, demon. Be gone. Now. Uh, now. Just one, one, one moment. Now. Yeah, this is getting very awkward. There's probably a lot of people watching. Jesus. Knows how awkward this really is. What was wrong with the Father begging for help? Nothing. Nothing was wrong with the Father's request. But the disciples' failure shows that they do not understand Jesus' will and ways. And how alike are we at times? God's, God's will and ways can be so distant from, from our norms from our defaults, from our uh, knee-jerk reactions. We too need Jesus to reframe our minds, to reframe our value system. Whose glory are you concerned about this morning? The disciples here act as a painful mirror to us. They expose the ease of which Our concern for our own status and our own glory overtakes passion for Jesus' glory. Someone praises you, recognises you for a good act, and in a split second, you decide it would be too socially awkward to point that praise to Jesus, the one who transforms your heart and empowers you to do the good deeds that are shining out into his world. Oh, in a moment's decision, you, you join in the, the joking and the mockery about a Pentecostal church or brother or sister in Christ because you're embarrassed that you might be perceived in the same light. Or you leave a serving team, or you don't join in the first place because you're concerned you'll end up looking bad when things don't go as smoothly as your perfectionist tendencies would like. And you can't control the the effort and quality of others in the team. Whose glory are you concerned for? May we be deeply passionate about Jesus and his glory and his mission so that we might decrease and he increase. Second question... Under the title "Strange Timing." Why does Jesus choose this moment to speak of his cross?" The, the scene of Jesus casting out the demon ends in the crowd being amazed at the greatness of God. I mean, this is a good PR moment for Jesus. They're recognizing as Jesus displays power, they're recognizing that's greatness of God were witnessing verse 43 they were all amazed at the greatness of god and while everyone was marveling at what jesus did again he turns to his disciples listen carefully to what i'm about to say to you verse 44 the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men so everyone is in this moment of awe and wonder, and wow, look at Jesus' power. Which was spectacular. He was greatly powerful. Displayed the creator God's power, because he is God, come down to this world. And they're marveling at that, and, and while they're doing that, he cuts through the moment with this real mood dampener to the disciples yeah, you've, you've seen my great God power, but listen. Listen. Now, literally, the phrase here is, is place these words in your ears. It's an idiom to say, let this sink in. Take this to heart. I'm going to be delivered. Delivered up. Betrayed. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Of I'm created God in all my power, but I'm going to be betrayed into the, the hands of Mere human beings. And just the previous day, we've seen his his glory displayed on the mountain. But then God says, "Listen to him." And here we see more of what it is we're meant to be listening to. And this is this is counterintuitive. It, it's contrary to common sense expectation. Jesus is so great and so powerful. He is the Messiah King, and yet he'll allow himself to be weak. He'll allow his enemies to succeed in betraying him. He will take all of his power and go to the cross. This Messiah King will become a weak loser who wasn't even politically savvy enough to avoid getting himself killed. Why choose this moment to speak of the cross? Because Jesus' greatness is shown not only in his power over spiritual evil, but in his willingness to lose. Jesus flips our expectations of greatness on its head. He could demand his rights. He could use his power to squash anyone on his way to success and glory and praise, and instead as Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 tells us. Instead, being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the humble form of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. This is Jesus' counterintuitive gospel. And that's not what we do. We, we do power and strength, that equals greatness. And we also learn that absolute power corrupts absolutely. We know dictators fear losing control, so they become tyrants. But Jesus hands over control. And in so doing, truly is the great and powerful one. Have you ever had that experience of, of struggling to remember something because it just didn't make sense to you? No, it just it didn't resonate with your expectations, didn't fit into your mental maps and ways of thinking, and, and so you just, it doesn't sink in. You, you, you don't remember, you just forget like that. I know for me, I, I need to know the, the why before something will sink in for me a lot of the time, uh, especially before any of my habits or practices will change. I need to know the why. Uh, I, I know that many times uh, my wife Catherine has told me to use the, the mixed setting on the washing machine. Um, uh, and I keep forgetting, going, must be the daily 60 setting, isn't it? That's what we usually use, daily 60. That sounds like a, a pretty normal setting. I'll use that. And, and recently she said again, I'll use the mixed setting. I said, why? I use the daily 60 setting. And she told me, well, mixed uses cold water and the machine's good enough that it doesn't need the hot water for, for a normal load. And I'm like, ah. Oh. So now I know. Use the mixed setting. I get it. Now I can remember. Before I couldn't remember. Uh, I needed to know the why to understand for it to sink in. Uh, you can't understand what doesn't make sense to you. The disciples didn't yet understand. They, they didn't get it. Uh, Luke tells us as much, very plainly, verse 45. But they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they didn't grasp it. They were afraid to ask about it. They understood so little of Jesus' will and ways that they were afraid to ask him, how well do you understand Jesus' will and ways? Do you know? Do you know why why someone would give up a promotion so that they don't run out of time in the week to be a youth leader? Or do you know why a, a missionary would give up their retirement to live in an unfamiliar place, learn a difficult language, and try to befriend people so different to themselves? Or do you know why a a doctor would destroy their career pathway prospects so as to study the Bible or work for a church? Or maybe you're, you're visiting this morning and you're not even quite sure why so many people would every Sunday give up one quarter of their weekend to be in church. Do you know why? May we get it more and more. Jesus is better. This world is his. He has good plans and purposes. Jesus is greater. He didn't, he didn't cling to the world's view of greatness. He made himself a servant and died for your sins to give you a new identity in christ to to call you a loved child of god and to give you a message of hope to proclaim in this world the more the more you believe that core truth in your life the more your life will be transformed to look counterintuitive to the culture around you our challenge is to listen better to Jesus' counterintuitive ways. Counterintuitive ways like love for an irritating co worker. Counterintuitive ways like grace for a rude family member. Counterintuitive ways like generosity for a selfish friend. Counterintuitive ways like time for a suffering neighbor. And so we come to the, the final section this morning, last question, and we see the extent of just how little the disciples get it and understand at this point, paradoxical logic, how can least really be great? How can, how can that really actually be the case? It's a fairly, fairly famous quote from Jesus, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. It comes out of an argument, an argument between the disciples. Verse 46, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child had him stand before him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. I want you to try to imagine the the emotions of the disciples at this moment. Three of them were just chosen for this special trip up a mountain that was so amazing and something so significant happened that they can't or won't even talk about it. And nine of them were not chosen for that trip. That same nine very publicly attempted to cast a demon out of a child something that they had a confidence that they could do. And they failed. And then their failure was announced to Jesus, Peter, James and John when they got back down the mountain. And then all of them don't understand what in the world Jesus is talking about. Some uh, are likely feeling insecure in their role as one of the twelve disciples. In, in the next story, evidently, they seem threatened by somebody else. Casting out demons in Jesus' name. Peter, James and John on the flip side might be feeling a bit elite having been chosen for the mountaintop experience. And so the greatness debate breaks out between them. And and Jesus cuts through this, this petty, misguided argument with an illustration of a child messenger. A child messenger. See, in this cultural context, a child was of no social status. You know, they're they powerless. They have no impact in the no influence in the society. They are the lowest position. But the picture is one of a of a messenger child, one who is welcomed uh, in Jesus' name. And so, in the days before modern communication, you know, important rulers and officials couldn't record messages or or do video broadcasts or make phone calls, they would send out messengers with their decrees and their instructions. And it was important in that culture that 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 messenger was understood to carry the, the full authority of the one they represent. They're coming with I'm just the messenger, it's his message and you're listening to him when I say it. And so the messenger carried the full authority of the one they represent. And so the disciples are meant to adopt the the, the lowest rank to humbly imitate a child, to be least but least as one of Jesus' messengers. A child who is a messenger of the king is least but carries the, the, the full status and greatness of that king's authority. They are the, the least is great by association. When you think about it, a, a police officer is uh, just another human being, just, just another fellow citizen in the country. But with the uniform on, they, they become representatives of, of our state and our state laws and they have great power to enforce those laws of our state. They they have power and greatness by association to the one they're authorized to represent. But still you may say, but yeah, I mean, can least really actually be great though? I mean, isn't great great and least least? We're just playing with words and terms. Uh, This is where we need to listen. Listen to Jesus. We we need a mindset shift. We need an attitude shift. We need Jesus to to right side up our perspective on greatness. This is Jesus' counterintuitive gospel and it's paradoxical. It seems contradictory but is actually true. From death comes life. From violence and murder comes peace. From betrayal comes victory. From shameful death comes glorious life. From least comes great. Jesus' followers must be willing to listen to Jesus and lose for Jesus. That is where true, albeit counterintuitive, counterintuitive, greatness is found. When you represent Jesus, you represent his great status. But he also didn't cling to that status, did he? He made himself a sacrificial servant. He, he, he gravitated to the, the, the outcast and the powerless, both physically and spiritually. Jesus here identifies himself with a child with a powerless child. So whatever this verse means, surely we should follow his example too. We don't want to so explain and, and, and sanitize this verse that we, we miss the obvious application of, of welcoming the powerless in our lives. Could it be that the way to get closer and closer to Jesus, to listen better and better to him is is to welcome the powerless and the unloved and the the, the difficult to love, the the difficult and, and awkward to relate to. Jesus has just declared that he is least about to be betrayed. To be least is to follow him in his humble, sacrificial service. We are to lose for Jesus. Let him win. It's a, it's a disposition of, of humble sacrificial service with a, a Christ exalting motive for all that we do. We're prone to overestimations of ourselves, aren't we? We're prone, like the disciples at times, to delusions of grandeur. Luke's made it obvious that Jesus' followers are, are not immune to pride and arrogance. Can you think for yourself, when was the last time you admitted you were wrong to someone? Wrong in the way you acted, or wrong in the way you spoke, or wrong in the ungracious thing you thought about someone else? Can can you remember the last time? If you can't, maybe it was too long ago. Or or who do you compare yourself to? Sinful pride flourishes in comparison. Comparison to that person whose commitment to your connect group is pretty lax. Comparison to that church that doesn't have Bible teaching as good as mine. Comparison to that family whose kids are way noisier than yours. Where's your sense of of self-worth? Is it in in your greatness or Jesus' greatness? Jesus wants to free us from also when we fail to meet even our own standards and our own comparisons to rather rather than wallow in self-pity but revel in new identity in Christ, loved and cherished by your maker how willing are you to lose for the sake of jesus name and his mission what what if you were driven with serious effort and commitment the kind of thing that we feel in competitiveness but driven with that just for the sake of Jesus' glory and it didn't matter how bad or silly you looked How can we develop the natural reaction to let Jesus win when we, in our sinful nature, want our choices and our priorities to win? We keep looking to the cross, don't we? He he was betrayed for me. How can I chase my own glory and my own autonomy when he has shown me something so much better, when he has loved me so deeply, You can live a truly great life when you surrender to Jesus, be willing to listen to him and willing to lose and let him come first. I'm going to invite the, the music team up now. We're going to begin to transition into a, a time of, uh, of, of celebration, of remembering Jesus and his cross and the way he lost for us uh, through the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, We we share in this, we we call it a meal, a little sampling of rice cracker and juice as a way of remembering Jesus' great love for us. It's it's a a small but visual symbol of the truth we celebrate. Let me give you again the the words uh, that I quoted earlier from Philippians 2. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. The passage continues, doesn't it? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We celebrate Jesus' greatness, seen in his willing weakness. This, this time we share together, it, it, it's a time for those of us who are part of God's people. So if you're here this morning and you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, you trust him as Lord and you, you rely on him to give you life with God now and forever, this meal is for you. If you've joined us in visiting, and, and that's, that's not where you're at right now, you're still thinking things through, I, I am so thankful you're here. Again, welcome. Please feel free just to be present and, and to participate by watching. And I'd love, love to talk to you more afterwards if you have questions. So as we move into this, we, we need to examine ourselves, don't we? Is your deep desire to listen and lose for Jesus? And has it been visible in your past week? Let's take a moment now for each one of us just to reflect quietly in your own head, in your own heart, how the, the ways in which we, we have not lived that out. We have disobeyed God in, in many ways this week. The, the sinful things you've done, the good things we've failed to do, take a moment to reflect and then I will lead us in prayer. Let me lead us in prayer as we as we once again Surrender to Jesus and place our failures at the foot of his cross. Heavenly Father, we recognise how sinful we are before you. We are sorry for our sins and we, we reject them now. Please forgive us by Jesus' sacrifice for us. We don't take part in this meal and this time today trusting that we are good but trusting in your loving kindness please remind us as we share in this bread and juice of your forgiveness over us and please help us to live in the hope of your coming kingdom may we pursue our joy in your glory and not our own desires Amen. I'm, I'm going to invite uh, the, the servers and helpers uh, to come and uh, take the, the crackers and the juice down the rows. Um, please, please take and then just hold on to, to both of those and then we'll, uh, we'll eat them together in just a moment. So, yeah, please come forward, helpers.